So our lesson today comes from the good news according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. And we know Jesus was teaching one day, and he said, You have heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you as children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those that love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the unfaithful do that. And then this last verse is usually translated as, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But the word perfect here means something like to be a filled bottle. So Jesus enjoins us, be filled with love. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is filled with love. For just and the unjust, for those like you and those unlike you, for the ones that love you and the ones that hate you. This is a trustworthy, holy word. Now, you know that the neighbor you do not know is the one who is going to do you in. At least, that's what a lot of the horror stories, news and bestseller lists are going to tell you. I know those fears. Very often, you see, I am your fears, and you are mine. We're dance partners, even if we'd rather be sitting against the wall chatting about the music. Now, I used to be frightened when I met people who felt that gay folk were doing major wrong and are an abomination. Because I've been castigated, and I've been spit upon, and I've been stalked, and I've been sent hate mail, and I've been assaulted for being out and queer. And I can be a slow learner, but it is tough not to learn to avoid pain. It is tough to learn to embrace pain. And I really didn't learn to begin to handle my fears of enemies until I met them at church. Now, I was just a regular church attendee at the time, but the issue came up as to whether the church would publicly support expanding the legal understanding of hate crime to include violence on the basis of perceived sexual orientation and gender. A lot of the church wanted to support this legislation, which I was publicly engaged in supporting, and a considerable body of the church did not. And while some opposed it on a legal basis, for others it was because being gay was morally wrong. Now it took courage to speak about these reasons regardless of the outcome desired, and I was moved by the way that the church conducted itself but I did make a little note to myself to steer clear of the folks who described queer folk as moral reprobates. It was not my finest moment spiritually. <laughs> but I don't think it's an unusual reaction. And yes, it was a Unitarian Universalist congregation. A welcoming congregation. Imagine my surprise when all those people I internally put a little check mark against, not 
wanting to really spend time around, turned out to really like each other in another context. Meeting in other places, we encountered each other. I met each of these folks I'd mentally separated as against me in, in these different spots, and we shared a meal, or we had a class together about our spiritual journeys, or we shared a laugh or a song. And most movingly, our reasons that we belong to that church. We shared an acceptance of our imperfections and of holy embrace. And you see, universalism can seem frighteningly amoral since it removes the ultimate punishment in light of God's loving acceptance. And where is divine accountability? Universalism puts that back into humanity's responsibility. If everyone's going to be welcomed home to God after they die, then where is the justice, many still ask. But universalism recalls us to a God of love, compassion, mercy, who loves creation. Now, while many Christians today are restorationist universalists, limited punishment, all welcome to heaven eventually, you might be tortured for a few thousand years, but you're, you're loved during that torture. Um, <laughs> Universalists regularly face this, well, we're, many of us are, are still there. The early universalists, these regularly face trouble and danger for living their beliefs. Because many people felt universalism undermined the foundations of a just society. You know, if you let people go around preaching that as though that's holy word, there are going to be all these amoral people out there and they're going to be doing terrible things. So an experience of one of our spiritual ancestors, the Reverend John Murray, was far from unique. He was preaching one day in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, when a stone crashed through a window and landed near him in the pulpit. Now purportedly, and this is on Murray's word in his autobiography, so who knows, he picks up this large rock and he holds it aloft and he observes, while this argument is substantial and weighty, it is not convincing. I have found sorting the world into good and ill convincing. It's just like throwing a rock. Instead, by sorting the world into good and ill, people I could trust and people I had to hate, I had become frightened, bitter, and untrusting. So at this church, because I was challenged there regularly to change, um, often by the minister coming and saying, you know, people are still scared of you. <laughs> Think you might have to work some more on that spiritual practice. So at the church, I turned again to these teachings of reconciliation and to Jesus' terrifying street theater that tells us to turn the other cheek and to love our enemies, to love enemies that can kill us in the street and walk away. I sought out other role models who had confronted hatred and violence with love, a steely, determined love that could argue and could be angry, but which was also nonviolent. Study and reflection came alongside practice. And if I was really going to believe that everyone is born loved and lovable, that there is inherent worth to every person, then I couldn't consign folks to the hell I didn't believe in just because I might seem like it was already stamped with a one-way ticket to perdition. 
Now, I joined an old-time Universalist church because at the center of old-time Universalist belief is the notion that no matter what and no matter who, God already loves us. It's still a radical thought, so I'll repeat it. No matter what, no matter who, God already loves you, us, me, all of us. We are loved and lovable, and our work together is to make this a more loving and just world. I have found great healing in that teaching when somebody else's spit was rolling off my cheek. Trusting that even if I am not understood right now, God still loves the, God, the me that God made. Now, of course, the kicker of that doctrine of universalism is that means God also loves the person who just spit on me or who's threatening my life. We are always one another's neighbors. When one of us is chained, none of us are free. And that was enough for me to understand I had to do better on the love department. Because I started wondering how afraid folks were who would be moved to raise a fist or slam the door on me. It took me a long time. I'm still a work in progress working from those first conversations with people who loved that God already loved them and me and all of us, no matter what, to start talking with people I didn't know if we shared anything more than our humanity. Because, you know, one of Satan's names is the enemy. And when in American culture where Protestantism is the wallpaper in the living room, when we make enemies... We're naming them as not entirely human. That inherent otherness and the associated danger to our soul solidifies our fears and makes it harder to connect in meaningful ways. When someone names a group of people enemies, the name reeks of brimstone. When threatened, the way of love calls us to turn away from fear to find each other in the smoke and danger, and to do so because we've been practicing that and being prepared for it all along the way. Because fear is a splendid garden for hate and iniquity and the failure of our own principles. Now, I've been learning to ask for and listen to the stories about the beliefs, the angers, the fears, and the misunderstandings that lead to these confrontational moments. I've prayed with someone who a short time before had accosted me by my bumper-stickered car, offended by what was plastered on the back. I've prayed at the prison side with persons who have threatened my life. And it's been hard. And I did it not to change the other person, but to change me. I did it because I didn't want my heart to be stony, because I needed to be full of the love that God has for all of us, to be full of that love that can send rain upon the just and upon the unjust. 
Loving my enemies has been an evolving practice, deepened by my efforts to learn more and understand and to live in solidarity with other communities experiencing oppression. So when I was studying about Islam, part of that study was participating in events with different Muslim communities. And the women who were part of this project were encouraged to veil, to better understand, and to also be respectful of the cultures that we were going into understanding that that was about eight different Muslim cultures, you know, one Uma, many cultures. So I covered my hair with a full veil, and I said the prayers as I washed ritually before I sealed myself into the hijab. And despite living in a neighborhood where women in hijab were very common, I immediately found myself in a situation. I was waiting for the bus. And a pair of men stood right next to me and started making unhappy and undesirable sexualized comments about veiled women, immigrants, and showing them a thing or two. They followed me onto the bus, continuing their pattern. They sat right behind me on the bus, deliberately, even though there's lots of seats. And so finally, I turned around and I said, why do you think what you're saying is OK? And that confrontational moment shut everything down, shut off the conversation, made me feel safe for a second and a half. And they turned away. And I had failed my own religious principles at that moment because I did not know how they felt. I did not know why they had done what they had done. I did not know what their own fears were and why they thought it was all right. So my first responses to this assault of sexually explicit and xenophobic invective was to become very quiet while I sorted through my emotions and my fears. Because I've been sexually assaulted many times before. And I've been the target of this kind of aggressive sexualized taunting and saw how easy it was to exchange the word queer for the word terrorist. When this incident occurred, I had yet to have a positive result from an interaction that started in this particular way and escalated after I responded with quietness. So my th second thought was wondering how often my neighbors and friends were experiencing such assaults. And with this wondering, I was angry. And my third was wondering why. Why was this kind of incident necessary? Why weren't others intervening? Why was the culture making it okay? Now, one of the things about public verbal violence that I've observed firsthand is that when others do not intervene, they encourage escalation. On the bus, most passengers shrink into themselves in order not to be noticed. I've seen that shrinking repeatedly on local and on long-distance buses so that we still travel apart separated by our fears, not wanting to get involved in something ugly and yet still part of it. I'd seen that fear and I'd struggled with it recently before this incident on a long distance bus trip where a small group took over the bus toilet and refused to allow anyone to use it. And this was a 19 hour bus trip, one stop. It was a demonstration of power and nothing more. 
watching a child tearful and shamed, worried that he would soil himself on this bus ride, I confronted those men, negotiating a change of seats so I could have the seat in front of the toilet door and becoming the gatekeeper. And I could do that in an angry space. But I realized, too, that being angry and negotiating that change and and ending there wasn't enough of acting on my principles. That my faith required me to change and not be angry, not be afraid, not be so separated. And so I went and I prayed with them. And I prayed with them to be leaders of their communities and to be softened in all of our hearts, to take that brave and courageous course, to be merciful, and to create a merciful justice. And by the time I was done praying, so was most of the bus. They were alongside. There were a lot of amens. And there was a lot of change that went on that bus. But I didn't do it to change the bus. I didn't do it to change the men. I did it because I was failing in my own religious principles to love my enemy. The bus driver hadn't involved himself because he couldn't see the events well enough. The adults who thanked me later hadn't because they'd been afraid. Most of our lives, we're traveling on some kind of bus, whether it's a real bus or it's the bus called this global earth. And we travel feeling desperately alone, and yet we're all together in our fears. So as I reflected on the incident with the men making sexual aggressive comments about me wearing hijab, I wanted to have something different come out of that. And because this was a neighborhood in which I lived, I knew I would see them again. And I did. I encountered those men when my hair wasn't covered, and we fell into conversation. And at first, they did not recognize me, because all they'd seen was the veil. They had gone to their own place of fear and blocked out the person that they had passed and talked to on a regular basis. They'd never been to a mosque, and they didn't know much about Islam despite living between five different mosques in a three-block radius. As we rode the bus and then walked and talked, I named mosques and centers in the area, and I talked about my own experience of being welcomed and learning so much more, and they said that they would go. I don't know if they did. I hope they did. But for me, it took the fear out And for them, it took the fear down because they thought I was going to raise some holy hell with them once they realized who I was and what they'd done. And we could meet as people to be full of the love as God has offered us, the just and the unjust. Now, each experience of meeting another person and leaping to a conclusion about my being a problem in society is another opportunity for me to practice. And every time someone condemns me to hell for how I love or what I say or who I am or how I believe is another opportunity for practice. And every moment of being set aside as an enemy is a moment for me 
to cultivate love. I spend time with and call colleagues who practice ex-gay ministries. People who are angry at being referred to a woman clergy person because everyone knows women should be silent in church. Folks who are angry at Christianity and having to talk to a Christian. And people who believe Unitarian Universalism only means one way of being or believing or faithing or some other reason that I fail this test of passing muster. I have a lot of chances to practice. I'm going to guess we all do. Now some of those chances aren't going to go well, and they're going to end with my sitting alone at a separate table in a clergy meeting lest I contaminate my other colleagues. And sometimes I'm threatened, and sometimes I'm spit upon. But more and more, I meet people against my fears and convictions and training that I like, who against their fears and convictions and training like me. We might hold very different understandings of justice or mercy or human worth and purpose, but in that meeting, in a love that changes us and is bigger than our own training and hearts, we have a chance to be filled and to fill the world with a different kind of love, a different kind of holiness that's truly worthy of veneration and acceptance. We can be changed. And that changes things, I believe, for the better.